0: the the financial aspect especially in this modern era of like hustle culture where it's like just work hard push everything aside and in 2 years it'll be worth it and i just fundamentally disagree with that and i i just feel like there're plenty of people that will hustle on a bad idea hustle with the wrong team hustle get divorced hustle you know all those things and it's like it wasn't worth it it didn't get to the outcome you wanted
1: Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well being? Hello, and welcome to Episode 12 of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. We have with us today Mac Lackey, who is an entrepreneur who has sold and scaled six companies. And at the moment, he is working with uh, an initiative of his called Active DNA, in which he helps other entrepreneurs move through the same process. So hi, Mac. Thanks for being on the show with us today. Thanks for having me. Um, so I wonder if by way of introduction, you can just kind of tell us a little bit about how you came to do what you do.
0: Sure. Um, so I think of my life in kind of two big pieces. There was kind of the, uh, the early part of my life, which was all about soccer. That was kind of my passion growing up playing all my sort of goals, dreams, aspirations were soccer related and I played you know, through college, uh, achieved a lot of my goals, played professionally after. Um, and then all of a sudden, when it was obvious that that path was going to come to an end, I didn't really have much of a, a plan. And uh, I had a psychology degree, so I wasn't really thinking about you know what I was going to do with that degree. And long story short, I ended up joining a startup in the marketing department. Really, just was about the only thing I was qualified to do at the time. And this was 90, 1994. And within days of, of working with this company, I kind of fell in love with the energy of a startup. You know, every day you show up and you do something different, uh, you're learning so fast, you're challenged. And I met an engineer um, in that company that he and I hit it off very quickly and decided, probably with some naive thinking, but uh, certainly some ambition that we should leave and start our own company together. And as good fortune would have it, uh, we started effectively an internet company in early 1995, shortly after Netscape launched the commercial web browser. So we were very, very early in what people now call web 1.0. And um, so I just started my startup journey at that point. And at that time, I mean, there was definitely no Grand plan. Other than we wanted to be working for ourselves, we were super excited about the internet space that was emerging. And about three years after founding that company, which was a garage startup in every every sense of the word, it was a you know little struggling business. We had sudden interest um, and ended up selling the company in an eight figure exit. You know, I'm in my mid twenties, I guess at that point, and um, it was such a amazing eye-opening experience about what's possible with entrepreneurialism and in these kind of early stage companies that I was like this is this is my life and so uh, from that point you know I spent the next uh, well I guess it's been 26 years now that I've been effectively a, a startup entrepreneur and over that time yeah I started um, scaled up and exited six companies which I'll, I made a million more mistakes but when I think about the highlight reel it's it's a little bit unusual to have had six exits and, you know, they were all seven or eight figures. So they were, you know, meaningful uh, by most people's measures. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of the, the super fast version of
2: uh, Mac's journey. <laughs> so I, I want to actually go way back to the beginning of that journey, because uh, I think in the beginning we, we actually had very similar paths. I, I grew up thinking soccer was going to be my thing as well. Um, so yeah. I'm I'm very curious. Where where did you play before college? Like where did you go to ODP? Where did you go to? You know where did yeah. you play in regionals? Because I, I wonder if we ran into each other.
0: Yeah. So I'm I am uh, born and raised in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I was actually I was in a suburb of Charlotte that was definitively not a soccer hotbed. Um, the schools that I was kind of lined up for were were very much you know football, American football schools. And so we moved in middle school so that I could attend a high school that was much more. It was a public, you know, high school, but it was much more soccer oriented because I needed to kind of, you know, line myself up for for a path. And um, I at that point I was playing, you know, club soccer. I was playing in high school and I was I was standing out, but I wasn't on anyone's radar, especially back in those days. It was much harder to kind of navigate and get discovered. And I was fortunately. Um, I was asked to uh, travel with a team to South America and on the team, there were several national team players and uh, we went and played some of the top teams in, in um, Brazil and Argentina. And at that point, several coaches sort of, you know, identified me, I guess you would say. And so my college path started to feel realistic. I went to Wake Forest originally to play and then I uh, finished at Berry college in Georgia. Um, followed a coach there. But so yeah, that was a big, big part of my life, but I was certainly not in a soccer hotbed.
2: <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to go too far on the tangent. Cause I know Terry's like, she's like, why are we talking about this? But, uh, <laughs> but so, so I, I remember also not from a soccer hotbed. I grew up in Rapid city, South Dakota. And our first trip to regionals I mean, we lost every game by eight or nine goals. We just got crushed by like Ohio North, Ohio South. Just, we just got destroyed. But it was so much fun. Such, such a great part of growing up.
0: Yeah. No, it's, it's been a big, uh, and, and really, even through my, you know, journey of, of entrepreneurialism, I mean, three, at least three of my companies were soccer related in some form or fashion. So I've continued to kind of go back and draw on, you know, that personal passion and, and the business opportunities around that. So I went from, you know, player to my daughters were playing. So I was kind of a parent coach and now I'm obviously a fan. But but, you know, being involved in soccer is has been a great part of my life. So
2: I hope you're still playing. I hope you're still playing.
0: Yeah, actually, the last couple of years I had a pretty bad injury. And uh, so I'm not playing at the moment. But I think uh, I don't think I'm completely done, at least, you know, casually playing. I, I think I'm probably done with I was, you know, playing in my 40s. With people a lot younger than me still thinking I had it, and, uh, and those days are probably over. I think if I'm playing now, I'm in my age bracket. But uh,
2: but yeah, I, I miss
0: playing, so hopefully I'll be back out there soon.
2: I, I love I love the human side, but you know, g- given given the entrepreneurial background, you know, and how much time you've spent in business, I imagine you get a chance to see a lot of success, financial and otherwise. Um, and I'm wondering if you ever see people with struggling with different aspects of achievement in the business world can you tell us a little bit about what that drive is necessary to succeed and what those struggles might be?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it, it sort of evolved for me anyway, you know, not coming from a, an entrepreneurial family per se. And again, Charlotte, just like soccer, you know, it was, a, it was basically a conservative banking town. It was not a cool thing to be an entrepreneur. Um, there weren't a lot, of, a lot of mentors and people I could look up to as sort of guidance and direction. So a lot of it for me and my early partners were we just really wanted to challenge ourselves and prove to ourselves as much as anyone what we were capable of. You know, I think think. it was this sort of competitive element of, it wasn't even a financial thing. We just want to prove that we can build something. We want to prove that we can, you know, land big clients and hire great people. And I think that's such a, a, self-rewarding loop that you get into that it feels really good to challenge yourself, get some achievement, make some mistakes, learn from those, you know, keep repeating the cycle. Um, And then, you know, again, fortunately for me in the whole scheme of things, we had a relatively early strong signal that we were in fact onto something, you know, we we had a a life changing exit uh, early in life that said, okay, well, if you really work hard, you are motivated, and you try to do the right things, there can be a reward on the backside of that that's very much worth pursuing. And it wasn't even necessarily just, you know, personally financial, that that was, you know, great and meaningful. But it was also seeing that people were joining our startups that were leaving, quote, unquote, steady jobs to take a risk, and they were being rewarded for the risk they were taking and for walking away from that perceived security, which back then I argued with less conviction. I argue a lot with conviction now that like being an entrepreneur, I think is a lot safer than working for a big corporation kind of period. But in those days it was, you know, leave the bank, leave everything behind, join a startup that may fail. And seeing that reward, you know, was really meaningful. Um, but the other big thing for me, which which has impacted a lot of my life is, you know, there was a very distinct point in time that I can you know, pinpoint the month specifically, July of 2000. I actually literally had just sold my second company and my daughter was supposed to be born in August of 2000. And I and I basically went into a depression thinking about I wanted to be this, you know, awesome dad. I have great parents, but my father was working so hard. He was a third shift engineer. He didn't go to college. He was working so hard that he couldn't be there for dinners and soccer matches because he was always working. And I was like, man, I really want to be there for everything for my daughter. I want to coach her team and carve the pumpkins and for classes. And I just had this vision. And then I thought, but, you know, I'm working 80 hours a week and sleeping on the floor in my office. Like, how does that going to work? And very long story short I just made a decision in in July of 2000 that I was not going to accept the trade-off that everyone around me was telling me like you can choose you can either be that kind of dad or you can be an entrepreneur that scales companies you just can't do both something's got to give and I just said you know I'm not going to accept that and um, the cool part about it for me was so she was born in August of 2000 and in August of I guess it was 2019. I dropped her off for her freshman year of college and I can look back and say, you know, I never missed those donuts for dads, but I also started, scaled up and exited four more companies during that duration, you know? So I, I know what's possible. And it's a big part of what motivates me now is like, I made that decision, which really drove me to figure it out. How do I scale it? And I'm home for dinner at five. And so that's a big part of my early motivation and the people around me.
1: Well, that makes me want to ask the question. What's your secret sauce? Because I think that you know, like for me, I, I had like a very like a similar kind of a moment when like I was working hard and I, I just you know I had my son and and then it kind of made me think, well, is money really is this is this all about money and is it all about ambition and and giving everything to your job and then you know what do you do with the other things? So what's the secret sauce for you? Like how were you able to do what you did professionally and then at the same time be able to balance your family life?
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a key question. And, and I think, you know, everybody has the benefit of hindsight. It's a lot easier for me to see looking back than, you know, when I made the decision, I really didn't know how that was going to work. I was just committed to like, I'm not going to accept that trade-off. Like it's going to be both. But what's really been a, a real key part of that has been the things that I was doing to prioritize family which would feel like to most people, okay, you're sacrificing something in business because you're prioritizing your family higher actually ended up being the things that made my businesses grow bigger and better. So for example, I mean, people literally used to think I was crazy. I mean, it, you know, we'd be sitting in the middle of a meeting with 10 people in a conference room and I would be speaking and, you know, my little uh, alarm would sort of go off that it's, you know, 10 minutes till five. And I would stand up and walk out of the meeting. And, and the first couple of times I did it, everybody was like, What's he doing? Where's he going? And then, and it was like, I'm going home to have dinner with my daughter. You know, I may, I may come back later, but I'm I'm leaving. But what happens is after a few times, people realize, okay, Mac's gonna leave. Business has to go on. Who's gonna handle the agenda if Mac's not here? So people tend to kind of start rising to the occasion, and I, and I realized very quickly. My presence in meetings was actually preventing them from moving up in their skill set and capabilities. It was really not giving them the opportunity to lead a meeting or challenge one another when the, you know, quote, boss is sitting there. And so I, I realized very quickly that the more intentional I am about letting everyone know what my expectations are, like this business has to run in my absence, not because I plan on going off the grid for a month, but like every day. I'm going to have something that I'm going to want to prioritize with my family. Maybe it's a, you know, a play at two o'clock in the middle of the afternoon at school, or maybe it's dinner. But during that time, it's unacceptable that business stops. And that's because I'm hiring really talented people like you. So figure it out, you know, so I wouldn't word it that way, but, but that's kind of what happened. And I realized that it wasn't an impediment. It actually was like a catalyst for growth. And so by the time I, got to my last company, the one I sold back in in 2018, I was the largest shareholder, I was the chairman, you know, all those things. And I technically had an office, a, a chair and a desk in the office. But they had no idea if I was in town, if I was going to show up when I was going to show up. So everything had to be designed and planned, as if Mac wasn't there. And then if I showed up, and I wanted to, you know, contribute or lead, I would, but I, I just watched that company develop so well, knowing that I was not a crutch. You know, I hire really talented people and I just throw them in the deep end. I'm like, good people swim, you know, and and, uh, like, I'm going to let you swim. And as a matter of fact, the faster you swim, the more opportunities I'm going to give you. And talented people embrace that. And so I found that out pretty early in that sort of test, I guess.
2: And then I just leaned into it hard and kind of kept that as my formula. I'm just I'm curious because I'm imagining the first one you're like well that was or after the first one where you leaned into that and the second one was coming up you're like well that first one was I just really lucky or is this actually how does it, how it works so how did you you know get over that hump of no 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 this is I can actually do this again and now that you've done it I get four additional times that's I mean that's impressive in terms of your development of the the, the human capacity that you work with. Well, I think um,
0: it really does come back to the original decision, which is where I think most people fall short, is they don't really believe or are convicted enough to say, I'm just not gonna accept the trade-off. I mean, most people will say, Hey, let's let's see how it goes. I'll take Fridays off and then after a month we'll assess. And if you've got kind of one foot in, one foot out, everyone around you feels and sees that hedging and kind of knows they can kind of pull you back in and Mac probably will be around if we need him and he'll answer his phone. And so I, I really kind of meant it that I was that convicted in the trade-off. And even if it meant the business was going to suffer, which I didn't want it to, but you know, if I told my daughter I was gonna be home for dinner, it kind of didn't matter what was going on at the office. Like, I'm going home. And so that's that kind of strength of conviction that I had to get in alignment with my partners with, you know, it was, it's always, you know, it's not like you just say it and things magically happen. It's like, you, you know, you make that decision, you commit to it personally, you discuss it with your you know, partners or the constituencies around you. And when you get in alignment, then people understand what you're doing. It's not like I'm bailing on people. I might be working till two in the morning that night, but I went home to have dinner with my daughter because that was a priority. Um, so I think once you get into alignment, that's when I felt it really clicking. You know, if people are resenting you and there's not alignment, it, it won't work. But my experience was you get convicted, you make the decision, you let everybody know. You also try to help them understand why it's actually good for them, too. Like I said, I mean, if you're a mid-level manager or a junior you know, person or even an intern in a company of mine, I could look you in the eye and say, if you do a great job, you're going to move quick because... I just give people a ton of opportunity. Now, if you make mistakes or you fall short, we'll hold you accountable. But this is one of those environments that we throw you in the deep end. And if you swim, you're going to get more and more opportunity. And most people really rise to that occasion and embrace that. So that was kind of my experience. And I, like you said, I mean, after the first time or two, I was like, okay, was that lucky? You know, was that timing? And then, you know, I've been able to repeat it enough that I feel like there is something pretty formulaic about that. And I always feel like hey, it's not, you know, it, it can't be that I'm, you know, so smart because I know that's not true. It must be that there's something to this sort of approach and formula. So yeah, I'd, I'm now convinced that is part of the secret sauce.
1: No, I uh, I love that. I think that's really great because I think you, you know, you you're 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 talking about how like the intentionality really then goes on to condition everything else and what you think might end up being a setback actually in the end be, is something that enables the business to succeed at another level. So I think that's really great. Um, I feel like I, I know where, what your answer, part of what your answer might be to this, but this is um, a podcast about what we call true wealth, which is that, you know, in our respective industries, like people are very preoccupied with the bottom line as if success is something only financial. But we want to explore what might true wealth be. And what do you think your answer to that might be? Where does it derive from? Uh, is there any single lever that you can sort of pull on that's going to catapult you further than another one?
0: Yeah, I think it, well, one, I love that you guys focus on that because I think it's, it's really important and it's, it's easy for entrepreneurs of any age, but, you know, particularly earlier stage, whether it's early in age or early, you know, just getting started as an entrepreneur, it is is real easy to get tied up on the the financial aspect, especially in this modern era of like hustle culture, where it's like, just work hard, push everything aside. And in two years, it'll be worth it. And I just fundamentally disagree with that. And I, I just feel like there are plenty of people that will hustle on a bad idea, hustle with the wrong team, hustle, get divorced, hustle, you know, all those things. And it's like, it wasn't worth it. It didn't get to the outcome you wanted. I, I think the best illustration for me, I need to draw a chart on this one day, although I wouldn't probably want to share all the details. But what's funny to me is if you look across, you know, the last 20 years at least, um, I live my life with such an extreme focus on you know family and travel and experience that it would, it would be really easy for someone on the outside to look at it and say, well, yeah, I mean, sure, that's easy for Mac to do because he made a ton of money um, and he's just, you know, he doesn't have to work. But what's interesting is if you, if you really charted me year over year, I had a natural tendency to take a lot of risk. And so I would sell a company, make a lot of money, not have an income of any kind, come up with a new idea, roll all my money into the new thing, um, and you know burn a million dollars on something trying to get it going and, and you know watching my personal net worth you could i mean it was just like jagged peaks of like mac is almost bankrupt and then suddenly mac has you know an eight figure you know bank balance and then another two years and it's like now it's hundreds of thousands not million you know so the reason that's so relevant is that's my personal bank account over time But what never changed was like I, you know, was in Europe traveling with my family and we were going to, you know, once in a lifetime experiences every quarter because I decided that that was what wealth was to me. Like I would rather take that one last amazing trip and then be like, all right, well, we got we can't travel for two years because we're really tight on money rather than delay a trip hoping that. Five years from now, we accumulate enough money that I feel safe and secure, and we can take some risk. I was basically like, "Life can't wait." You know, kids are their ages one time. I'm healthy enough to travel. You know, and so that decision and the way I've tried to live my life, um, I, I think is is real wealth. I mean, it's it's like I wouldn't trade that for any amount of money. I've had just like plenty of people when I was sold my first company. I went straight out and bought the red nine eleven I wanted and the, you know, all the stuff, beach house. And then all of a sudden I was like, beach house is a pain. I can't carry my kids in that car. Like, you know, I mean, I know again, people say this stuff and it doesn't resonate sometimes, but it is so true. That is literally like a checkbox and it feels good for about a month. And then you're like, all right, well, I would just rather be able to spend time with my family or do experiences. And so prioritizing that, gives you the luxury of saying it doesn't matter what your net worth is. Like you don't have to sell a company or have a certain amount of income to prioritize amazing experiences with your family. And that means a lot more than the the bank balance in my world. So, uh, so that's how I kind of did it. And it, you know, and there were some moments that I was like, Whoa, we are, we've taken a lot of risk. And if this thing doesn't work, I got a lot on the line and I made plenty of mistakes and I've lost plenty of money. But I feel really good looking back that that was pretty consistent. Like from the outside in, you would never know that that had changed
2: for me. You know, I was really focused on that. Do, do you know, I don't remember the name of the movie, and maybe one of you can remind me that the movie that had Alex Honnold climbing um, El Cap, Free Solo. Free Solo. Oh. Yeah, Free Solo. Yeah, yeah. So I'm listening to you talk, and I'm, I'm imagining you're like the entrepreneurial version of Free Solo. Um <laughs> Right. The, the, the financial entrepreneurial version where you said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this thing with my kids. And I'm doing do this thing with my family. I'm going to travel, do, go big, have a great time, look back and not have any regrets. And it seems like you've always had the next thing work out for you. Yeah, And I, I, I'm wondering how many people get to the third exit and live that way and then they have no security and then the fourth exit doesn't come. Yeah. Uh, and I just putting this in that context you didn't seek out wealth. You you ended up with some, and you used that. I think wisely, experientially, with family, building relationships. Does it? Do you think it comes down to luck?
0: You know, I certainly never discount luck. I mean, I think luck matters. Timing matters. Um, I think one of the characteristics I look for in other people. Uh, When I think about partnering or doing anything that's really meaningful in in my life that I'm tied to, you know, I really am looking for people that are, that are opportunistic, that they go through life with their kind of eyes open and radar up, like reading what's going on around them. Um, So that's a really big one for me. And the other one is just, I think, good business judgment, which is really hard to assess, but it's one of those things like you kind of know when you see it, it's like I... I you know make I take risk I still do I make investments I try things some work some don't but I also have a lot of discipline to say I'm okay if it doesn't work and I can I can mitigate the risk by you know controlling how much and I have enough business judgment to say when something's working I lean in when something's you know sort of shifting on me I will like you know pull back and reduce risk there was some great quote I would butcher and I know there, there are a lot of people, um, I even heard this when I was growing up, you know, that, that you know, you kind of go into a, a house and, you know, when you go in the door, you also open a couple windows. And, and it's like, I used to do, do this blog post about, you know, not entrepreneurs don't tie on a blindfold and jump. You know, they actually, yes, they're going off a cliff, but there's what you don't see is they've already put a little thing at the bottom to catch them. And they've got three friends holding something on the side and like good entrepreneurs mitigate risk think a lot about risk. So it looks like you're crazy, but you've actually been really thoughtful about, okay, if plan A doesn't work, I've got plan B. If plan B doesn't work, I've got C. If C doesn't work, I could still sell the asset. You know, So I'm always doing that. Um, and no business I've ever had has gone in a straight line. I mean, the business plan and idea that I started out with was never the company I sold. I mean, it always was navigating through kind of turbulence. So if I have any, any gifts, which, you know, I would say I have a few things that I think I'm reasonably good at a lot of things. I'm not, and I try to partner with people on, but I do think I'm relatively opportunistic and see things early and I'm really curious. So I kind of try to figure them out early. And the other is I am just always willing to navigate and switch gears on a moment's notice. Like, Hey, sorry, I was wrong. Let's go. Right. I, and I feel no pressure to, I told everyone we were going to do this. And so let's keep marching. And I think that's been really critical for, for me is not holding on to anything so tight that I
2: miss the real opportunities. So just, just one quick follow-up. I, I remember uh, at the end of the movie, uh, I, I talking to people about it and there's a sense that Alex is a li- Alex Honnold's a little bit on the spectrum. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if that's kind of what it requires in, in entrepreneurship as well. Maybe not spectrum, maybe that's not the right yeah. word, but something special about, you know, focusing on opportunity, being able to manage risk, being able to shift gears, that's just not there in the uh, public.
0: Well, I don't think I'm on the spectrum. I got plenty of things <laughs> I could, could sort of, uh, yeah, you know, be diagnosed and medicated ADD, like a lot of entrepreneurs, but, um, but no, I, I also think there's different types of entrepreneurs Um, there are a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of the ones I work with now in my uh, exit DNA program, you know, they, they are, they have a domain expertise, they're world-class, they've built their business, which is their baby. They've been doing it for five years or 10 years or 15 years or longer. And, you know, like that's their sole focus. And for me, you know, people would always say, well, why did you choose, you know, that soccer business, or why did you do that apparel thing, which seemed like a way off the rails thing for you to do. And it was always like, that was the opportunity I saw, like it didn't, if it would have been basket weaving, I don't know anything about basket weaving. I still would have jumped all over it because I would have seen the opportunity. So I do think there, there are entrepreneurs that are much more open to just being opportunistic, looking for trends, looking for things. And then there are those that are really talented, but they're truly like, and it sounds like I'm saying this in a bad way. I don't mean it in a bad way, but they're like one trick ponies. Like they are engineers. Yep. They're great at it. You know, they're a designer. They're an architect. They're great at it. So the business they build is an architecture firm that kind of follows their thing. For me, I mean, I was bouncing between hedge funds and apparel and all these things because I was constantly looking out just like I am today, where is the next opportunity And how do I assemble something in that category that is interesting? And when you go through life like that, like everything looks like an opportunity, you know? So I I never, you, you said a minute ago, by the time I sold a company, it wasn't what's next. It's like, which one of the two or three that I'm excited about am I picking next? You know, I always had several things, but one of my early companies, um, I ended up selling my interest to some of my partners because they they were not wired the same way. They were much more traditional. As a matter of fact, they just exited, you know, great exit, nine figure exit. But it was like 15 years after I left, they were still doing the same thing. And, I, and I, I could not have possibly done that regardless of how much money was at the end of the rainbow. I was done 15 years before them. You know what I mean? So that's another nuance. Like all entrepreneurs are not created the same way.
1: Yeah. And I wonder, you know, a a couple of episodes previous, like when we talked about these, you know, personality profiles, like there are, you know, let's say risk tolerance is like on a personality graph or like neurosis or lack of neurosis is on a personality graph. And like a lot of those things will then sort of dictate how you position yourself. And so it sounds like you have like a specific profile of like a develop and sell kind of a person as opposed to a farmer who's going to you know, farm a specific plot for 15 years and (laughs) that, that rainbow. Well, Um,
0: especially with the exits, I think it's, it's not unfair, but a lot of people like, oh, you, you built stuff to flip it. Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, almost never did I build a business. I'm always thoughtful about like, what does an exit look like? You know, it's what I teach in exit DNA. I help people do this kind of stuff, but every one of my companies that I started, I would have, you know run for another five years or raise more money or, you know, doing something different. But when the opportunity appeared to like, okay, there's an investor or there's a potential buyer, or I see a shift in the market that I feel like I need to do something different. Uh, I was, I was not stuck or on hanging on to it. Um, and that's happened to me a number of times where, I mean, I had a, a term sheet in my hand in March of 2000 for a $15 million venture capital investment for a business two weeks before NASDAQ crashed, dot-com bubble burst. And thank goodness that we didn't get hung up. We kind of tore up the term sheet and said, ah, we're gonna rethink this. We sold the company for about $15 million a couple months later and split the money. But if we would have taken the term sheet and been stuck on that mindset, we would have had to build the business 10 times larger to get the same outcome that we got right away and i see a lot of entrepreneurs especially with raising money feeling like that's a step in the process you know you get the term sheet you raise the money then a couple of years later you sell and i'm always like maybe maybe i raise money maybe i sell now maybe i do a joint venture like i'm i'm just very open and the result has ended up being more often than not that an exit made sense or i needed to exit or the offer was too good to turn down but i'm i'm just sort of open to that and i I always tell people I work with, what you want is you want the option to exit and you want people to want to pay you a premium for your business and you decide if and when you sell. Like You don't want to be forced to sell. You want the option. And so a lot of it, although it ended up mean exiting six times, each one of those could have had a different outcome if, if we would have sort of said, oh, it's better to just run it as a lifestyle business for another decade. I probably would have done it. So.
1: Um, So I want to, like, change tacks a little bit. One of the questions that also uh, comes up a lot on the podcast is that, so wealth is having kind of a a bad moment. And I think there are social reasons for that in terms of, you know, widening income gaps between different segments of, of society. And so, you know, one of the questions Jonathan and I ask ourselves a lot is, is the pursuit of wealth something that's kind of inherently selfish in the sense that we're looking to build our own pile bigger and bigger? Or what do you think, do you think it's possible to have it be like a social and a personal win-win? Is there is there a way to pursue wealth in a way that makes everyone everyone's life better?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, I'm like anyone, I'm opinionated and I'm looking through my own lens of the world, but the the best proxy for me and when I think about this kind of stuff is, you know, my mentor many years ago was serving on a, a nonprofit board and he asked me if I would consider you know joining him on this board and I uh, I went into the first meeting and I listened to this nonprofit group talk. And I you know walked out of the meeting. I said, absolutely not, <laughs> you know, and he was like, really? Why? Like you always, you know, you're you try to be helpful. You want to help people. I said, yeah, that's just not the context. Like I can't help people in a nonprofit with a ton of bureaucracy. But if you say, Mac, the goal is to feed a million people, let my brain go to solve that problem because I think of business ways to do that. You know, can I create a business that generates enough capital to you know, put in a nonprofit or put in a foundation all day long? My mind can do that or try to do that, but in a nonprofit setting, I, I can't make that work. Like it feels broken to me. And so I, I sort of look at it that way and say, well, in a, in the way my mind is wired I look at everything through that kind of, I don't know if it's capitalism, but like, I know how business works. I understand it. I'm more comfortable operating with that context. So if I'm trying to solve a social problem, um, that's where my mind goes. And I've often seen, you know, there's a company uh, right now that just gives me like such joy. The two founders and leaders of this very successful venture-backed company separately started working with me as unpaid interns, and they just navigated really, really quickly through our you know, businesses at various times, and they ended up you know, going off and starting a company and raising money and hiring a bunch of people, and you know, they'll, they'll sell it at some point, and all that capital will get recycled into other startups and you know, philanthropic mm-hmm. things. But what's so cool about it is that's basically, to me, that's social enterprise. You know, These are people that were not in a position when I first met them to start a company or to raise capital or to build anything at scale, but because the way we try to model our companies and give people a ton of opportunities, I didn't care if they were interns or not. They were smart, talented, so I moved them quick, and that sped up their journey to, you know, ended up starting their first business. So, um, you know, I have to separate that out of my mind. I have like a philanthropic part of my brain. That's like, if you want me to donate money, you can send me a proposal or whatever. I can look at your nonprofit and say, here's a check, but I would much rather sit with people and say, what's the real problem you're trying to solve. I might be able to do something a lot better than write a check. You know, maybe I can really direct a lot of resources or some creativity, that will do a lot more than a little check I'm writing you. So that's the way I do it. Um, I, you know, I do think wealth is in my mind, you know, is it, is it important? Is it something I think about? Yes, but I don't personally, like I'm not pursuing, you know, add another zero, add another zero. Like that's not important to me or interesting to me. I feel like it's, you know, am I doing things that, matter to me and to people around me? And am I enjoying them? And does that create enough resources that I can hire great people and I can do good things? Uh, that's how I tend to look at sort of the, the more social and philanthropic side is like, I'm
2: doing that through enterprise. It, it So you, you work a lot with founders and look, you know, the exit DNA, and, and I'm sure you've done some angel investing. I've, I've done some angel investing. Um, I'm curious Oftentimes, uh, a founder will present in two different ways. And I'm going to see if this resonates. Uh, Some founders are like, they've got a problem. They're going to solve this problem. They're just so into this problem. And there's an issue. And I can figure this out. I'm wicked smart. I can build a team. It's so exciting. And then some founders go, oh, market share, scalable revenue opportunity. And the first one, I get really excited to talk to that founder. And the second one, I get repulsed. I'm like, this is gross. I understand. But venture capital looks for the second one a lot more than the first. I'm just kind of wondering, what do you see in the founders you work with?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really accurate insight. I think, um, you know, again, everyone's sort of on some continuum and some are at the extreme of, you know, one side of that, the other extreme. And I don't... um, I don't disagree. I mean, it's a very big turnoff to me. I do a fair number of, you know, angel investments. And if someone comes in and says, you know, we think we can generate X amount of revenue and sell it in two years. And here's what that return will look like. You know, to me, it's like, all right, well, that's not interesting to me. Why do you want to do it? You know, and there's a lot of risk in startups. There's probably another way to get to the outcome you want. Like, let me help you. Uh, So I, I similarly find that to be a turnoff. I like, I like when founders are really, really trying to solve a problem that they see in the world or they they feel for themselves. Several of my companies have very much been that, where I saw something, I'm like, ooh, I want to fix that because I want it for myself. And if I want it, I bet other people want it. Um, But I also, I don't like when founders are detached from what does that mean, especially if you're bringing on investors, like investors are not philanthropists. It's not a donation. It is an investment. And so do you understand how to build a business on that problem you want to solve? Do you understand how to generate a return? And that's the expectation of an investor. So I like when there's a little bit of a balance, not that that's driving it, but they go, oh yeah, I I get it. You're not investing $50,000 so that, you know, you get a Christmas card every year. You actually want, you know, 80,000 back in some, some time period. Um, so I like a balance, but, but the one side is, is very much a turnoff for me. And I, and I do see a lot of that. Um, the other thing I see, which I bet you do as well, is a lot of times people come to me and they say, you know, I incorporated or I've got this kind of idea. And so, you know, I'm going to raise money and then I'm going to leave my job and go do this thing. And I'm like, you got the order all wrong. Like, like you know, nobody wants to invest to give you a job. So you can leave and, and like be safe. Um, everybody wants you to be successful. Take the risk, leave the job, prove it's working. Now investors can add fuel to what's working. I don't want to like burn my money in hopes that it works. And I think there's this narrative now where a lot of people think raising capital is literally like step two or three in the process. And I think that's just dangerous, you know, and, and they haven't gotten to product market fit. They aren't generating any kind of real user interest and they just think, okay, well, that's next. We're working on our design. So let's go raise money. And then we'll do that part. So I, I find a lot of people I have to say, you've you've got it out of order. You know, you can raise money not only more successfully on much better terms and much better for you if you take that next step or two, bootstrapped or maybe friends and family with people that love you and support you. Um then you go out to your angels and say, Hey, it's working.
2: Now we want to double it, triple it, scale it, whatever. That's I mean, that's ugh. You're just you're nailing it right there, but but in a in a global macro sense, there's just so much money out there right now that so many people are just taking whatever they can get right now, and I think that ends up you end up seeing a lot of failed companies in the in the relatively near future because of it.
0: Yeah, I I, I had one business where uh, many many years ago I was actually actively running a company. Some people came to me. It was a business that I ar- had already had some success in. They asked me if I would co-found the company with them. And so I I did. I was relatively passive because I was running another business and they ended up raising a decent little friends and family round, but it was, you know, seven figures. And I watched the decisions that they made because they had the money. You know, they bought like the Herman Miller furniture and they got, you know, professionals to come in and wire the offices. And I'm like, you know, my last two companies, we were sitting in like broken desks from Goodwill and they were worth, you know, 10, 20 million (laughs) dollars. and you just got started and you're already picking furniture nicer than what I've had. And that sort of bias of, you know, capital is also negative for people. They raise a lot of money. And so they feel like, okay, this is just going to work. And like, let's throw money at it. And they never really get to that product market fit or something. that's a strong signal that that's when you pile the money in and say, it's working, let's reach a much larger audience. And, and a lot of people miss that, yeah. which yeah. leads to failure to your point. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I think those are really some great points. Like, I love that uh, business about, you know, sort of, philanthrop- I don't want say philanthropy, but like having social impact by solving problems. I think that in like the, the kind of bad wealth moment we're having, I think like that kind of gets forgotten sometimes. Um, so I don't know, uh, Mac, is there anything you would like to add or uh, do you want to tell our audience where they can find you?
0: Sure. Well, you know, first of all, I... Um- I think the stuff that that you guys are are doing and talking about is really important because I do think the pendulum has swung way too far with kind of this hustle culture and and you know really, really sacrifice everything and go you know it's cool to be an entrepreneur and raise money and go build something. And I think people really should take the time to step back and assess you know what is true wealth, what does success mean to them? And if you're really honest with yourself, a lot of times it isn't you know, that, oh, it's got to be 10 million or I have to own X percent, all those kind of things are not the right metrics. And so I love what you guys are doing. My my focus at this point is primarily after my last exit, I've been mentoring founders and entrepreneurs in a program called Exit DNA. And the whole idea of the program is I want to work with founders typically two to three years before they really think they might want to exit. They don't even necessarily know yet because it's like the um, Einstein quote, you know, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. I know there's a lot of little things I can help people understand and do now that if they start doing them, they're really easy. They're really low, you know, friction, they're actionable, but they'll wake up in two years and those things will have compounded into a lot of exit value that they can monetize. But if they wait, until like, they need or want to exit, something happens and they're like, I need money or my investors need out and they're like, okay, I got to sell in the next two quarters. They might be able to exit, but only about 20% of companies that are even trying to exit get their deal done. And a really low percentage can look back and say, I maximized the exit. So I'm really passionate about helping people with this. Um, so yeah, I have my personal site, which is maclackey.com. I blog and kind of talk about, you know, just entrepreneurship and helping people, which is important to me. And then ExitDNA.com, which is just a little bit more detail around my program. It's not for everybody. Um, you know, I do it in small cohorts because I really want to kind of handpick and work with people that I think I can add a lot of value to and and I would enjoy working with. But for the right founders, it's been really rewarding for me and I'm getting great feedback. I think it's a little over 90% of our businesses referral at this point. So it's mostly people that have come through, had a great experience and said, Hey, you know, you got to go through Mac's program. So that's how people can find me. Um, I appreciate that. And, and yeah, if there's anything I can do uh, for you guys, again, your message is really important. I think it's, it's good that you're doing it. So I'm, I'm happy to support it in
2: any way. Thanks very much, Mac. Uh, it's been great having you on. Thanks for having me.